Hi, guys. We'll be starting shortly. Thanks so much for joining the Useful Idiots calling in. Call in Useful Idiots. Uh, very excited to be here. We'll be starting in um, within a minute. Okay. In fact, we're going to be starting now because I see my co-host, Aaron. Here we go. Um, so we'll just take the first caller. And that will be John. Uh, hey, guys. Great to see you. Hi. Uh, another great show today. Um, I just wondered if you would touch on um, the backpedaling uh, that I've seen uh, happening. There was a New York Times article um, as well as like a lot of uh, uh, these uh, pundit shows uh, where they have military people saying things like, uh, you know, uh, maybe a Ukraine victory may not be the biggest, the best thing. You know, I guess because of the, uh, the this fear of nuclear war, supposedly. But um, it's it's a lot of backpedaling that's convenient because, like, Russia keeps, like, doing its thing and keeps moving further and, you know, solidifying its gains. And they've been spinning it for so long. Um, it's kind of hard to, um, you know, how will they break the news to the American people that, oh, Russia actually won this thing? So you're, you're saying that the messaging is changing because Russia is having some battlefield success, like in Mariupol. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, uh, what we're seeing is so like fatally flawed, the entire, spin on everything and you know um like like they do stuff like you know the the bucha you know uh atrocities you know and then a week later they're not talking about it anymore because oh it looks like that was completely made up you know but now it's like they're very carefully beginning to uh change the way this is being talked about it seems to me because, it, you know, other sources are just saying, like, you know, Russia's doing what it's out to do, which is to, you know, totally take over the Donbass and, you know, and, and secure uh, Crimea and possibly Odessa. And, like, you don't hear about that. You hear them in the Western media. They oh, the, the you know, defensive Kharkiv and all this nonsense. And um, and yet here they are sort of backpedaling things. And, um, you know, this whole time, of course, Putin's this uh, this monstrous uh, madman, you know, but it's, you know, and the other thing they keep saying is, um, you know, he's fired so many generals like who's left to fight. (laughs) Well, I'll say this. I'll say this. I agree with you that they've downplayed Russia's successes, like, for example, taking Mariupol, the way they framed that, that was like, even though basically the Azov Battalion surrendered. And so how was that portrayed in the media? It was portrayed as Ukraine ends its military defense of Mariupol, which yeah. is a really strange way of saying surrender. But and um, they said evacuated. They wouldn't say the word surrender. surrender they exactly. Said. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a egregious case. But I will say this too. You know, I'm not sure that Bucha was fake. It wouldn't surprise me if Russian soldiers committed war crimes there. It wouldn't, I mean, these things happen during war. They wouldn't be, I think, particularly 
out of the ordinary or very surprising. Uh, what I do think is interesting is how, for example, the bombing of the theater of Mariupol, where supposedly hundreds of civilians were killed. That was like a major atrocity. So yeah. if true, but yet there's been very little about that. No video of the victims, no, uh, even very little of the actual, uh, even actually very little footage of the building itself. Because I think if you were to give us more video, we, we could show that actually this wasn't, or more video could help determine whether or not this was an airstrike or not. And instead of there being an explosion from the inside, which I suspect it was, I can't prove that, but that's what I suspect. So on incidents like that, everyone's kind of moved on. We're supposed to forget about it. Bucha, I don't know if that was staged. Yeah. I, it wouldn't surprise me if that actually, if, if the allegations against Russia there were real. That's the better example, actually, because there's actually before and after pictures of like cars and vehicles being there. And then they were all moved out when this bomb supposedly struck that exactly. didn't the roof. But no, but um, oh, what was I going to say? <laughs> yeah, now now that uh, they're coming out with stories of, you know, um, raping babies and babies on pikes and all of this nonsense. And then, you know, the, the little disclaimer, we were not able to independently verify this. Yeah. You know, that's just crazy. So yeah, it, it's insane. And, you know, um, and then <laughs> I don't know, did you see this, this, uh, uh, whatever pastor, uh, screaming out about, you know, the devils and the demons, uh, that, you know, didn't vote for Trump or whatever. I missed that one. Yeah, that started going around. You'll probably catch it in the next couple of days, but uh, yeah, it's, it's insane. But huh. anyway, thanks a lot. Um, Thank you, John. Doing what you're doing, I'm so in awe of you. Appreciate Bye it. Now. Thank you. Okay, Will. Thanks, John. Hey guys, it's Will, uh, aka Hi, Will. film philosopher, huge fan, obviously. Um, just a quick question, you know, with. Um, Finland and Sweden joining NATO and you've talked, um, Aaron, particularly um, about NATO creep, you know, particularly since the end of the Cold War, uh, moving east and provoking Putin. I'm just wondering uh, on the show today, there's a lot of saber rattling by the talking heads. Uh, what percent chance or where do you place that realistically about Putin ever using tactical nukes, given like what you just discussed about um, some of the advances they're making. Um, so that that's my question, just kind of your thoughts and takes on the whole tactical nuke reality. I have no idea. I don't know what's in Putin's mind. I don't know what the thinking is inside his inner circle. I don't know if they're crazy or not. My general thinking is that they're not crazy, but who knows? They could be. And um, my whole thing is we should just do everything we can to make sure that there's no scenario in which it's possible. And an easy way to make sure it's not possible is just to promote diplomacy instead of flooding Ukraine with more weapons. That's, that's my take on it to uh, try to assess the probability. It's just not, I don't have the capacity to do that. Yeah. Katie, your thoughts. Whoops. I would, I agree with, sorry, there's a plane overhead. Uh, but I, I, I second what Aaron said. Katie, it's not a nuclear plane. Yeah, I was going to say, are you in a no-fly zone? Well, oh my god! I, mean, I can't reveal. I can't reveal where I am. <laughs> Hidden look. She's in witness protection. Yeah. Yeah. Witness protection. Martha Raditz. 
we're doing an, a special from a plane now instead of a submarine. Yeah, we'll keep on the move. So thanks. We'll do. All right. Thanks, guys. I'll thanks, Will. Yeah, thanks. Good, good, good hearing from you. You too. Sally. Hi. Hi, good you? Fine. Uh, just a quick word about abortion um, and what I don't remember the, the lady, the anchor were, was talking about. Um, that part, uh, I think it's very revealing that uh, there's a lot of people that don't want abortion at all. But here there was a lot, there is a lot of people that are very okay with abortion uh, if it's a rape or innocent. And then they are questioned about why they are against uh, And they say, no, because it's a human life and blah, blah, blah. And so it's a human life even if it's uh, when you are raped. I mean, it doesn't make sense. But uh, the obvious conclusion is that uh, there was a, a senator that called it the democratization of pleasure, that when a woman is not uh, willing to open her legs or when a woman is not looking for sex or not getting pleasure from sex, then okay, let's forgive her. Let's let her have an abortion. But if not, she should like carry the punish or something like that. I mean, in, that, in their minds there's a lot, I don't know if there is the same, but is there's a lot of, of thing about women having sex and being a right of men and something from the last century or right. millennium. And, and of course, there was that senator. Was he a senator? No, what was... Uh, oh, he uh, was my my favorite politician. He died of COVID. Is His, his name is um, Pino Solanas. And he gave an amazing speech uh, during the... Not the last... Um, not the last one. Uh, because when they pass it, but the one before the debate on 2019, I I don't know. Uh, yes. What what was your question? No, I was actually just mentioning the I can't remember his name, but the guy who said that a woman who was raped can't uh, can't get pregnant. A woman that gets raped can't get pregnant. Yeah, there oh, was they a... said so many stupid things. Yeah, but that so, was but they... from an elected official, and I can't remember his name. I think it was Todd something. I can't remember his name. He Todd? he was he was defeated by um, uh, Claire McCaskill. Anyway, I'll. I'll, I'll... Uh, those names are I are doesn't sound Argentinian. Oh no no no! This is in the United States. Oh okay. Oh I yeah. don't know. No no I was talking about. It. No, I don't know. Right. This is this is what it was. It was um Claire, Todd Todd Aiken who was saying that legitimate rape rarely leads to pregnancy. Yeah. Well, there was a very very famous, very well respected until that point um a medic the, no, doctor, I don't know, medicine doctor that was really very respected and during the the the, the abortion debate, he claimed that um there should be abstinence because even um, preservatives doesn't prevent you from getting AIDS. So they can say, I mean, of course, his reputation went out the drain, but 
they can say anything. Yes, they can say. There was this case where a little girl was raped and they uh, brought the rapist to call for the, the to call for the baby and his rights for the baby so to stop it and they can say anything. Wow. But just that and something a heads up uh, there's a new there's a new Bolsonaro like in the region and it's ours. Oh no, so, sorry. Yes, yes, yes. It's very sad. He's Javier Milei. I hope you don't listen from him anymore, but it's, it's really gross. Okay, we'll keep an eye out for him. <laughs> bye, bye. Thank you. Bye, for thank you. Okay, let's see. No war. Good morning. Missed you last week, Katie. Thanks. Miss you guys. Yeah. Um, your hair looks awesome on Monday morning Thanks. today. Yours too, Aaron. Aaron, yours as well. Um, we both changed our hair. <laughs> hey, uh, two quick questions. One was, I heard you say, I, I had heard last week that the Disinformation Board Ministry of Truth was paused. And then you guys said that somebody was put in play in Nina Jankowicz's place. Can you clear that up for me? And then other quick question is uh, Ari NATO expansion and Finland and, and Sweden. Do you guys know what, I mean, can any member state block that? And are there any member states that would like maybe hungry? I remember Scott Ritter in an interview saying, uh, before the French uh, presidential elections, that he was kind of hoping for Marine Le Pen to win because she would have blocked that and put an end to that. So is it the case that any member state has veto power over admitting new states? Um, how does that work, if you know? Okay, yes. Yeah, so pretty much any member can block another's ascension. It has to basically be unanimous. So Turkey right now is standing in the way when it comes to Finland and Sweden. And that mainly has to do with the fact that Sweden has a relationship with the Kurds of Turkey, which Turkey oppresses. And so Turkey wants Sweden to give up its support for the Kurds before it will support its membership in NATO. So yeah, you do need everyone's support. And a country like Turkey can block it. And uh, when it comes to the disinformation board, yes. So basically Michael Chertoff, who was Bush's first home or he was a homeland security secretary under bush i can't remember if he was the first maybe tom ridge was the first he is now being tapped to head the disinformation board but it's kind of like he's going to do a review of it to see where it goes from here so they're not killing it they're handing it over to a bush neocon to see what to do with it next but basically uh, nina jankowitz is out she was forced to resign because she was just too embarrassing but the board itself i think will go on he was, yeah, he took over from Tom Ridge, and he was one of the authors of the Patriot Act, Michael Trump. There we go. Great. Yeah. So Wonderful. what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for your time today, He guys. also Talk prosecuted Crazy Eddie, Eddie Antar, by the way. What Remember Crazy Eddie? It's insane. Oh. He's a uh, founder of the uh, Crazy Eddie electric store chain. Anyway. He was the prosecutor in the fraud in the fraud case against him. Anyone out there who watches, who knows what I'm talking about, pretty interesting. Thank you for your time, guys. I'll talk to you later. Thanks. Okay.
Michael. Michael? Hi, can you hear me, Katie? Yep, yep. Real, real quick, I just wanted to ask, when Robert Gates mentioned about, was it Robert Gates who was mentioning about a nuke going off in eastern Ukraine, how yes, the winds that, would blow yeah. the uh, fallout toward Russia? Yeah. Was that was that a veiled threat, do you guys think? Because that's the way it sounded to me. Like, uh, like why, why, why would, like, why would Russia detonate a nuclear weapon right on its doorstep, right? Like, that almost sounds like an implied threat to me. I don't know what you guys think, but... Yeah, no, exactly. The threat isn't necessarily to Ukraine. It's Russia using it somewhere else where they feel that that, that could give it an advantage in a proxy war against the U.S. And the other threat, too, and a, a member of the comment section pointed this out, which is that, you know, when you have such tensions between the world's top two nuclear powers, you have them on the opposite sides of a proxy war and very little communication, then you're just increasing the risk of some sort of accident. I mentioned this on today's Monday morning where we've come very close before where basically there was like three mi- a three-minute window to decide whether or not... Able Archer. Yeah, yeah. To decide whether the other side had launched a nuclear weapon. And thankfully, the right call was made, but you just can't rely on that. We don't want to be three minutes away from a nuclear holocaust. So that's that's why diplomacy is so important. Yeah, I don't know. It just seemed to me like if Putin went on, or Putin's uh, you know, head of the military went on TV and said, oh, you know, if a nuke detonated in, uh, I don't know what, Mexico or something or Puerto Rico, well, the winds, the, tr- the trade winds would carry the fallout to America. It's like, well, America wouldn't detonate a nuclear bomb on Cuba or Puerto Rico, right? The only people who would do that would be its, its enemies, right? So to yeah. me, it's like, that sounded like a real threat. Like if a nuclear bomb, Gates, Gates didn't say if Putin drops a nuclear bomb. I don't recall him saying that. I think he said just if one happens to go off in eastern Ukraine, should that happen? You know, that sounded to me like just like a threat. I don't know. Well, let's hope it wasn't. Let's hope it was not. Um, yeah, but, um, yeah. Hopefully but not. it was weirdly stupid. I was shocked and I forgot to bring this up. Like, yeah, was he suggesting they would do it in Ukraine? I mean, I didn't hear it that way. I, d- I didn't think he was suggesting that the U.S. would do it. I think he was no, talking no. about But, I mean, why would Putin? No, I oh, said yeah. no, he definitely was suggesting that Putin would do it. Absolutely. That was right. his. Which yeah. is not where I think a nuclear weapon would be used. Absolutely. And, you know, I brought up this on another call a month or two ago. I don't know how beaten and battered and bruised Azov Battalion is, but do either of you guys think there's a possibility like they're going to be used as a pretext in 10, 20 years for us to do some kind of military intervention in Eastern Europe? You know, we've got to go defeat Nazis in Europe again. You know, just like we went to defeat... (laughs) the the, the mujahideen that we set up and funded back in the 80s you know like do either of you see that as a well that's a great example that's a great example so the u.s arms supports the mujahideen in afghanistan and then less than a decade later or just over a decade later i should say when 9-11 happens now all of a sudden we have to wage a global war on terror to defeat the group that came out of the mujahideen so that does not strike me as implausible at all that one day actually Azov 
if they grow in strength and if they take advantage of all the weapons that they've been given as a result of this proxy war, that that will one day be a pretext for... Yes, yes. It, it's, that's what's so crazy. Is anybody in the military or a position of responsibility asking themselves what is going to be, like, who's hands these weapon systems are going to fall in i mean is that even a concern i mean or is it just about pumping more as much money into raytheon and and uh you know boeing as possible i don't know it's a concern for some people there was an article in the washington post about this last week where they pointed out that already even before the invasion ukraine was a hub of global arms trafficking because so many <laughs> weapons have come in there since 2014 and because right. you have extremists coming in from around the world to fight on the uh, side of the Azov Battalion. But uh, it's not a concern for people in power. They don't care. No, thank you guys so much for documenting it. So in 10 or 15 years, when we have to go into Ukraine to fight the Nazis, it'll be well documented. So you, Michael, you know, yeah. keep, keep, up, keep up the good work. Michael, did you hear our latest episode with Lev Galenkin? I listened to about, um, you mean the one that you just broadcast, yeah. the live stream? No, 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 no. Li- our, our podcast and no. The one that we released. I have on. not. Sorry. No, it's okay. But you should listen I'm to it. I'm a bad fan. No, it's okay. It's fine. But he talks all about Azov. So you cool. should listen. I'll check it out. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Chuck. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. I I listened to Matt's or I listened to Aaron's show yesterday, and he started to talk about Sussman. I was just, in the last year or so, with all the other stuff going on, I feel like that thread has been lost. The whole, what the DNC and what Hillary did to democracy is not really, hasn't gotten half the attention, the truth hasn't gotten half the attention that the lies that the media told for three years seem to receive. And I'm just hoping that maybe in the future, are we going to get back to that? Are we going to start looking at, you know, who who was, you know, really guilty and where our democracy was, you know, pretty much undermined in a, in a really serious way? And I think that issue sort of bleeds into Ukraine and a lot of other issues that matter to all Americans, not just one party or the other. Yeah, so... I couldn't quite hear everything you said, but I think I got it. And I'll just repeat it. And if I got anything wrong, let me know. But basically, you're saying that the uh, now we're getting details of how Russiagate was pulled off and how the Hillary Clinton essentially scammed the country by pushing this collusion conspiracy theory and how the details of how they went about this lie have not gotten anywhere near the attention that the lie got back when it was being propagated back during you know the two plus years of Mueller, of Mueller time. And I agree with you. And I think it has a huge role in the current crisis in Ukraine. Basically, Russiagate promoted a Cold War posture toward Russia. It criminalized diplomacy with Russia. Trump came into office talking about cooperating with Russia. And instead, Russiagate was used to pressure him. And it didn't take much pressure because he has no principles anyway. So it was easy for him to cave. Pressure him into ramping up tensions with Russia. And that's why we saw him go along with his neocon advisors like John Bolton in tearing up nuclear treaties with Russia and in doing what Obama wouldn't do in Ukraine, which is arm the Ukrainian military for its fight against 
rebels in the East. Obama did not want to arm those people because he was worried about provoking Russia and he was also worried about arming neo-Nazis. Trump came into office and he reversed Obama's policy and he, and he sent those weapons. So Russiagate is hugely consequential for geopolitics, not just U.S. democracy. And yeah, amid all the concern about disinformation, this was the number one and most consequential act of disinformation since the Iraq war. And there's been no accountability for it. And because so many powerful people in politics and media were a part of it, I don't think we're going to see accountability for it. The only shred of hope is via the John Durham investigation. And there's a trial going on right now of Hillary Clinton's lawyer for taking part in that scam. But the problem is too many people were complicit. And so it's in their interest to downplay it and ignore it. So I just don't think we're going to see anywhere near the reckoning that it deserves. Well, and part of what 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 makes me uncomfortable is that in November, if Congress goes to the Republicans, then then they might pick this ball up, and then that whatever truth is there is lost in what appears to be partisan politics. I think it's up to progressives to pursue this and try and get as much of the framework set before before it just looks like another political, politically motivated hit job. And, well, look, I, know, I, I totally, I totally agree. And that's why I've been focused so much on this issue for the last, you know, however many years, because I did think that this was such a dangerous thing for the world and also to the left. I mean, after all, it was used to prop up the Hillary Clinton wing of the party that should have been vanquished forever after losing to Donald Trump in 2016. <laughs> but instead they used this to hold on to their power. So I agree. But the problem is, Bernie Sanders had a real opportunity that he, I think he squandered. 2016, what did those leaked emails show that were blamed on Russia? They showed that Hillary Clinton was corrupt and also conspired against Bernie. So Bernie uh, had a huge opportunity in 2016 when Hillary lost, because not only did she lose to this uh, buffoon in Trump, but also she had been caught trying to rig the primaries against Bernie. So Bernie had a real opportunity to, to, to say to take over the party and say, you know, the Clinton wing, their message failed. They, people revolted against them. And also they're corrupt and they were conspiring against me. So I don't have to, I don't have to cater to them anymore. I did all I could to elect them, but they failed. Now it's the time for a new direction. But what did he do when the Clinton wing responded to its loss by coming up with Russiagate and using that to avoid any real self-reflection and using that to hold on to their control of the party, Bernie catered to it. Bernie did not offer any skepticism whatsoever. He didn't even say, you know, maybe we shouldn't talk about Russia so much. We should talk about other things. He just basically catered to it. I think that was a huge mistake. I don't know what the thinking was behind that. And it, it ended up, he ended up enabling a scam that was used to sabotage him, where in the 2020 primaries, they Russiagated Bernie when they said that Putin was behind a huge plot to install Bernie. Because of course they did that, because Russiagate was never about anything real. It was never about a real threat. It wasn't even really about Russia. It was about enforcing the power and privilege of the neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party. And so that's why they used it against Bernie. And that's why it's a tragedy that Bernie didn't, didn't stand up to it. But that puts him now in no position for to challenge any of it today. And that's why he's still voting for the $40 billion Ukraine bill, giving $40 billion to the, you know, to ostensibly for Ukraine, but really most of that goes to the military industrial complex. So I wish this was a 
issue for progressives, but it's not because they got enlisted into going along with it. Well, I, and you're, you know, you probably have a better finger on the pulse than I do, but I, I would say keep drilling down on it because the more, I mean, there's a lot of facets that I haven't even heard discussed, which the biggest one, I mean, we could talk about it all day, but the biggest one is Mueller. Like how did Mueller not, if the FBI knew that, that the Steele dossier was bunk, how did Mueller not make that part of his report? And how did Mueller drag that out two years? I understand the, the Rachel Maddows of the world getting ratings, but Mueller should have been accountable to somebody. And that, like I say, we go on and on, but yeah. I appreciate yeah, your we're... work and I hope you keep drilling down on it. And I know it may not get the numbers or whatever, but I think eventually our kind of our, I mean, it sounds, you know, a little hyperbolic, but I think our democracy depends on getting to some truth on that because that's where that gives life to the 2000 mules. I mean, I, yeah. I think that is Listen, probably it. Yeah. 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 We're going to move on just because I, I right. want to be respectful to those who don't care well, about Russia gate, but, but, but thank you. But yeah, um, <laughs> right. but no, but, but it, look, I, I appreciate your words. So thank you. And in terms oh, of why Mueller you. didn't touch steel, I'll just say quickly, Mueller's job was to make the Russia investigation look credible. So the reason he didn't touch Steele is because the initial stage of the Russia investigation was based largely on Steele. So it was Mueller's job to come up with other stuff that could make the Russia investigation look credible and justified. And that's why he didn't touch Steele, because doing that would expose the Russiagate investigation as a farce, which is what it was. So that's that's why Mueller didn't go after Steele, because... The investigation he presided over was based on Steele's fraud, essentially, and he had to obscure that. So, thank you for the call, Chuck, and we'll move thank on you. to D. Hey, what's up? How's it going? Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, I actually have to, like, I'm a Bernie two times guy, but I actually have to defend Bernie because one of the things that I've noticed to me that I guess I would be critical of you guys on is, like, I'm not a Ukraine fanboy, but like one Russia, there's undisputable evidence that there there are some of the things that the media has said about them in terms of what they're doing is fake. But also Russia has a white nationalism problem itself. And the other thing that that to me I'm really discouraged by is Bernie is going to posture himself as as a Democrat um, because so many of the people on the left have de- dedicated their time into making the right sort of this anti-war party that it's not so bernie's going to you know sometimes vote on party lines um because he's going to like try to reinforce that point like i i've been discouraged aaron when you and um others in your cohort have like positioned the republicans as if they're anti-war um and the democrats are a pro-war party so i'm I'm wondering where that idea comes from i think they're both pro-war parties and i think republicans are overall more of a threat when you look at their record, yeah. their recent record. But but uh, I'm not going to ignore the fact when you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene voting against the proxy war bill and people like Bernie Sanders and Ro Khan and AOC voting for yeah. it, you have to point out that you have to be honest that at, right now the only anti-war sentiment when it comes to Ukraine is coming from a wing of the Republican Party. Of course, like the leadership of the Republicans are still pro-war, Mitch McConnell, Mitt Romney, all those people, Liz Cheney. But it just, it's just a fact. And it's I'm not saying this to praise Republicans. You know, I would never vote for or support voting for a Republican. But I'm pointing out how insane it is that 
progressives like Bernie and Ro Khanna and AOC yeah. and Ilhan are ceding anti-war sentiment to the far right. That's insane. That, well, that's, I, yeah. I think, but to be fair, and this is where I'm going to go in on progressives, Afghanistan really opened my eyes because progressives kept berating like establishment Democrats just pull out from Afghanistan. And then when Biden got the political blowback, because I remember progressives didn't really say, you know what, we have his back. Progressives during those two months, whether it was the socialist MMA guy or whoever, kind of hid and didn't do anything. And when Biden pulled out of Afghanistan, every progressive in the country should have been like, we don't like the guy, but we're with him. And instead, the progressives hid in all the right wingers, including Marjorie Taylor Greene and including um, like people like Paul Gosar. They didn't praise Biden. They were there attacking uh, Joe Biden like all the other Republicans, you know, so it's just a purely political ploy. It's a purely political ploy. All right. Well, look, I can't speak to how everyone, the people you named individually reacted because I didn't follow everyone's reaction. But I remember, I mean, my experience of the progressive lefty media community, I, I, I thought it was supportive of Biden's withdrawal. And uh, there was criticism of how he went about it, which I think is fair. Um, it didn't have to be as chaotic as it went down. I think that's fair criticism. But overall, the decision to withdraw, I think, I mean, at least where I sit, that was praised. And it should be supported. And it, it should be praised. It was a good thing to withdraw. And yeah, you're right. The Republicans didn't praise Biden because they're not genuinely anti-war. But that doesn't mean now when you have a very dangerous proxy war that I can just ignore that it's people like Marjorie Taylor Greene who are being more anti-war than Democrats, because now we're talking about Ukraine, not Afghanistan. Yeah, and it's not because we're like, if you watch or listen to our uh, episode from this week, we talk about how Marjorie Taylor, uh, what's her name? Marjorie Taylor Smith? Green. I, I, Green. Marjorie Taylor Green. I can never remember her name. I think I block it out on purpose. But... um how she voted against like relief for, you know, for baby formula, even though she herself had, had pointed out that we had money for Ukraine weapons, but not for baby formula. So they're all total opportunists. So the point isn't that they're being good on this for any principled way. It's that the Democrats are so bad that they're letting the Republicans uh, on certain issues be more anti-war than they are, which doesn't mean they're an anti-war party. I agree. I agree. I agree. I know I agree with you guys. I'm just saying it's important that our movement, if we want to gain power, because I want like I, I voted for Bernie twice. So I'm not like some Biden show. I want us to be able to like forcefully condemn the right and not frame them because, you know, there are people in this space, like I said, who are like constantly like, oh, you know, they're making broad proclamations. And it's like you can hate the Democratic Party, but the Republican Party is doing things the Democratic Party will never do. They're trying to get like DeSantis just banned protesters. So these are things that we as progressives that want to gain power need to keep pointing out so that we are able to gain power and gain credibility, not only with the media, which screw them, but gain credibility with normie voters who just want to be, who want to feel comfortable voting for progressives. But thanks for taking my call. Yeah. But you know, again, listen, look, my, my problem here is at what point, at, at what point do these people become, um, unelectable? Like for example, if you're supporting $40 billion for a proxy war that is a huge gift to the military industrial complex and that I think threatens or increases the threat of global extinct extinction, you don't automatically deserve my vote. I, I just can't like to me that for me, for me personally, that's a red line. I mean, I've always supported Bernie. 
I think Ber- I admire Bernie a lot personally, but I'm sorry. There are certain things that to me are just so unconscionable and so dangerous that I just, I can't no longer, I can't just pledge my reflexive support to you anymore. If you're doing something, if you're going along with a neocon proxy war, honestly, for me, this democratic vote for the $40 billion for the Ukraine proxy war, to me, that's like a Democrat voting for the Iraq war. It's not as immediately, uh, catastrophic as the Iraq war vote was because that was an outright authorization of an, of a criminal invasion. This is more just supporting a proxy war that's already going on, but it's pretty bad. It's up there. And I think it's unconscionable. And I think that, uh, I'm not going to just keep reflexively supporting progressives. I think they need to be pressured now to explain why they voted for that because they haven't. Bernie hasn't even said a thing about why he voted for it and they need to be held to account for it. And that includes even threatening not to vote for them. I'm sorry. That's, you know, I, I don't, I don't speak for anybody else but myself there, but that's how I feel about it. Yeah, that makes sense. Keep doing what you're doing. All right. Thanks for the call. Uh, okay. Liana. Hey, good morning. Can you hear me? Yes. We can hear you. Yeah. We can hear you. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Um, two points. Uh, did you catch Lucy McBath in Georgia with her testimony about why she... Uh, if you had, that's fine. If you hadn't, I just wanted to point out to everyone listening that Lucy McBath a congresswoman in Georgia. She has very fascinating information. About what? Having a hard time hearing you. I'm going to have to hang up. Okay. All right. Next caller. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm uh, calling from Sweden. Uh, I heard um, uh, an earlier caller um, asking about uh, the possibility of NATO countries blocking new members. And as as you said, Aaron, um, there is this Kurd thing here in Sweden. I don't know if does the American media are the American media watchers aware of that aspect of the thing of Swedish the, the Kurdish question that that is not like really between not really Sweden. not really no uh, yeah it's it's basically I mean there are in many countries in the world like a diaspora of uh, people who I mean this is kind of like the um, the Florida Cubans, so to speak, the ones that are very um, politically active in uh, inspiring the American politics to be more um, hostile to Cuba. So there, there is this um, Kurdish community in Sweden. And I guess because of that, there's this um that's why there is a relationship between the 
the Swedish government that is now led by the Social Democrats and uh, the uh, Kurdish activists here. And uh, the, the difference is that while in America, it's that, that's more on the Republican side. So it's more of a right wing thing here. It's more of a left wing thing because, uh, yeah. So there was this funny story, actually, that <laughs> the, the thing that has been the, the specific Kurdish group that has been uh, in focus now has been the PKK, which is the, as far as I know, it's the Kurdish communist, uh, yeah, militant communist organization that have some um, some people connected to them that, that live in Sweden. And um, it came out that uh, a social democratic politician who was even in, I mean, she, she has some kind of um, place in the European, the EU parliament. She was for the Social Democratic Party of Sweden. And she was a big paper here, um, brought up the story about how she had been to Iraq and, and uh, meeting with the PKK. And so she had to, after this news story came out, she had to take a so-called timeout from politics by her party. And our defense minister was supposed to, he's also a Social Democrat, he was supposed to investigate this thing. And turns out, he himself had been meeting with the um, with the Kurds of the PKK, speaking at some event of theirs and so on. So it's um, as you may have seen, our uh, foreign minister was like, hey, "There's a lot of disinformation now about how we support this PKK and so on." So it has created some kind of uh, trouble <laughs> between. Um, the ones who, like the Kurds here and those who are sympathetic to their cause and uh, the Social Democratic Party and uh, yeah to me it's kind of because it's opportunism from both sides I think it's kind of like a short and fraud thing <laughs> but uh, yeah so but as We'll see what happens, but I think what there's people believe that in the end Erdogan just wants just wants to make a deal and is bringing up this as an excuse, and in the end things the thing will I mean Sweden's membership will, will go through anyway. I don't know, but I guess that sounds reasonable to me. Yeah, well, we'll see. It's a strange time. It's a strange time to see. Uh... NATO continuing to creep up to Russia's borders. But uh, I also think the way Russia's talking, they don't really care as much about Sweden and Finland as they do about Ukraine joining NATO. Ukraine is, for them, existential. Sweden and Finland, not nearly as much. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that won't uh, be the trigger for World War III among all the other potential triggers. So thank you for the call. Yeah, thank you. Okay, Michael. Do we have a Michael? Let's actually go to uh, Liana because, uh, uh, unless Michael's here, because uh, we heard from Michael. Oh, he left. So let's do Liana. Whoops. And then Jason because Liana got cut off. Daddy. 
Hey, good morning. Can you hear me? Yes. Great. Um, my question is for Aaron. You had mentioned earlier on the live stream about a treaty that the U.S. had either tore up or refused to um, follow. And I would like to know more about how to find more information about that. Because I think if voters understood how this law and order language is really not backed up by any facts that we might have a little bit more credibility going into the, the midterms to help people understand that voting red and blue is just not in our, anyone's best interest. Over. So the treaty is called the INF treaty uh, okay. <laughs> and um, Trump withdrew from it in 2019 and let's see who's written about it uh scott ritter's written about it scott ritter actually helped scott ritter actually helped enforce the implementation of the inf treaty back when it was uh it first came in to force in the late 80s and uh yeah i'm sure there's plenty of stuff out there and it just basically it but it just got ignored when trump killed it it got ignored um, because it didn't go, it, it didn't fit with the Russiagate narrative. The Russiagate narrative was that Trump was doing Putin's bidding and here he was tearing up a vital nuclear treaty with Russia to the great protest of Putin who did everything he could to ha- have it renewed and his offers were uh, rejected. And it actually plays a major role in the background to the Ukraine crisis because um, this again is a situation where it's not just about Ukraine. And NATO, it's also about a situation where Russia is dealing with the U.S. continuing to encircle it with weapons. And that already began on in 2002 when John Bolton tore up the ABM Treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. And that allowed the U.S. under Bush to build sites in Poland and Romania with missiles pointed at Russia. And the excuse from the Bush administration was that we really need these sites to defend Europe from Iranian missiles, which was a joke. No one believes that's true. Iranian missiles can't even hit Europe. And if they could, launching them would mean Iran's destruction. So it was a transparent scam to further encircle Russia. And so in that context, then you have Bolton coming back under power under Trump uh, or back into power under Trump. And he tears up the INF Treaty which allows the U.S. to build up a whole new class of nuclear weapons that had been banned up until that point. And so Russia had been asking to extend the INF Treaty and to uh, you know, re-engage with arms control and actually proposed to the U.S. in December of this year as part of the, its, its, its military buildup. And around, you know, as there was this concern about a Russian invasion of Ukraine, Russia proposed a, a, among its among its proposals was for both countries, the U.S. and Russia, to commit to rolling back offensive weaponry near the other's borders. And that included the missile sites in Poland and Romania. It also included the missiles that the U.S. was now deploying under or after its withdrawal from the INF Treaty. And Biden essentially, he gave a lukewarm response he said he was kind of open to negotiating some stuff, but on the core demands of rolling back offensive weapons in Poland and Romania, 
Biden basically said that we'll allow mutual inspections, but we're not going to take away these weapons. And so that climate of basically the U.S. killing arms control and placing weapons near Russia's borders and that continuing under both parties. I mean, on that issue, I think Democrats have been a little bit better than than Republicans because the withdrawals from these treaties took place under Bush and then Trump with John Bolton being the key player in both cases. But still, both parties have continued the same policy, and it's a recipe for for disaster. Oh, yeah. And this last vote for that $40 billion just sealed the deal. I mean, and no, polit- no Democrat can say, well, I wished it had had this in it, or I would, you know, I would have been happy with my vote if this would have. No, if you voted for it, you support everything in that bill. And so I hope that journalists will force them to be stay in integrity with that language otherwise yeah i appreciate uh, what you guys are doing so much thank you keep up well thank you work. thank you thanks for the call okay thank jason you. And Jason, if you're there, there is a uh, microphone button in the bottom right that you press to unmute yourself. Oopsie. There you go. Got me now. Uh, Hey, hi, Aaron, Katie. Listen, very anti-war. It's super depressing to see the progressives, Bernie Sanders and the squad, just go along with the pro-war narrative the Dems and Republicans push. What can someone like me do to support anti-war movements, anti-war politicians, since there doesn't seem to be any anymore? It's a great question. I have no answers for you. I don't know. I don't know anymore. I mean, what are what is even anti-war at, at this point? It's like, uh, yeah. it, it, it's it's the anti-war movement has been really weakened by. Barack Obama, I think, first of all, who, you know, kind of pretended to be anti-war because he was against he was running against Republicans. And that, that was after you know years of the Iraq war. But Obama kind of then told everyone to stay home and don't don't protest anymore. And while yeah. I just while I just wage a friendlier war via drones and dirty wars. And that was very successful in, in neutralizing the anti-war movement. And now we have a situation where Democrats are voting for to fund a proxy war. So. And where are the major anti-war protests? They're not really existent, but there, you know, there's still groups like Code Pink and the Answer Coalition and the PSL. I mean, these are all still leftist anti-war organizations that are out there, but it's very difficult right now to find a genuine anti-war movement. It's a hard time, especially if you identify on the political left. Yeah. Yeah. I guess Medea Benjamin for president. I don't know. That's about it. Sure. Yes. Yep. Yep. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And maybe, look, maybe if there's enough, I mean, what I what I do think would be positive and possibly help revive the anti-war movement is if the progressives who just voted for the proxy war in Ukraine were held to account. You know, maybe they'd be forced if there was enough grassroots pressure to change their position, and that could provide a spark for reviving a a very dormant anti-war sentiment in this country right now. I mean, anything could happen, you know, so there's no reason to be fatalistic. 
nothing is ever dead. Mm-hmm. But yeah. there there needs to be something. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. So thanks for the call. And up next we have Nick Cruz. Hold them to account. Oh, sorry. What's that, Katie? How would we hold them to account? Well, shit. Like, you know, ask them questions. Ask right. them to at least explain their vote. Hold protests. I mean, yeah, why, right, why, yeah. why, why shouldn't there be a protest outside of a progressive who just votes to give a huge gift to Raytheon? I mean, yeah, if, there's, if there's any time for a protest, it's now, I'd say, for a progressive. And, look, yeah. you know, and that doesn't mean – look, I'm not advocating ab- abandoning progressives. I, I would never tell someone to do that. I, I'm saying for myself, though, after that kind of vote, their su- support for them is no longer uh, guaranteed. Because I just think it's because I just think that's such an unconscionable a- uh, action. Anyway, uh, but you know who has, you know who has stuff to say about this is our next caller, which is Nick Cruz from the Revolutionary Blackout Network. Okay, Nick, hello. Hey, Katie, Aaron, I love the show. Uh, I was just chilling, and then I saw someone name drop me, and I'm like, "What? <laughs> Why you say me for?" So I'm gonna explain my mindset because he said something like. Why wasn't some people in left media like praising Biden for pulling out Afghanistan? And I, I don't know. I, I would love your your response to this, Aaron. I don't. I don't separate hot war from cold war anymore. And when I covered Biden pulling out Afghanistan, I was telling people like, why is he increasing the military budget while he's doing this? Why are you still planning on having CIA ops on the ground in Afghanistan? And also, I was wondering, what is the plan for Afghanistan? So why would anyone praise them prematurely? Now, I, I, I mentioned this on my show. Biden's sanctions on Afghanistan right now is scheduled to kill more people than two decades of war in Afghanistan. So my question for anyone, why would progressive praise a war hawk like Biden before the deed is done? So as someone who do not separate Cold War from Hot War... I don't even consider him pulling out of Afghanistan. He, he's starving them to death, right? Now, regarding the whole dis- discussion that same guy had regarding Republicans versus Democrats, not only do you have Bernie Sanders and the squad like straight up voting to be imperialists, they are joining the Democrat Party on their new domestic t- uh, terrorism bill. They even joined the uh, Democrats to, in increasing the police budgets even more. So... I don't know why people separate those two. Like you gotta say Republicans are worse. Biden is funding the border industrial complex way more. You know the kids in cages that people used to care about, way more than Republicans did. So I'm asking you guys to ponder, like people who are listening, person heard heard that person. Why do you guys separate the two? Like they're both responsible for insane amount of damage. Amy Klobuchar just now said she's she having like this police officer day, like she made a holiday for police officers. The same week that George Floyd was killed. So how how do people like look over this stuff? Like, is there like a level? I, as a black man, I see it as a level of privilege. So I would love your th- take on that, Aaron. Like, I'm gonna take on Cold War versus Hot War because mm-hmm. I, I was born in '91, and arguably there have been more people killed via Cold War than Hot War. It's, it's extremely devastating. Millions are about to die in Afghanistan. So I don't know why anyone would praise like. Biden for pulling out of Afghanistan when we know his his shift, which should change the strategy. But I don't want to take too much time because I know you almost, we 
we got a lot of callers here. So I just, I just want to share my thoughts on that, Aaron. Well, Nick, uh, thanks for calling in, especially since, yeah, uh, you were name dropped. So I'm glad that you could come in to respond. I, I didn't want to uh, certainly speak for you nor, nor, nor anyone else. Um, look, your point about Afghanistan and the sanctions, I think, is so important because you're right. Why should we praise a guy who right after he withdraws, which was, by the way, a decision that Trump took. I mean, Biden was actually carrying out what Trump already signed into law. So he didn't even have much choice unless he wanted to do a dramatic reversal. He goes around and he, he turns around and tries to starve Afghans to death with these sanctions and stealing its, its currency reserves. So, yes, I'm glad he withdrew. That's a good thing. But to praise him is a different thing because you deserve praise when you do something that's actually – courageous and you and you do it with full integrity not just you know half integrity or quarter integrity and in this case Biden's withdrawal was uh, followed by imposing sanctions that killed that, that that are killing Afghan children so why praise him for that if anything he deserves pressure for continuing these sanctions which he's not really getting and so I, I think you're totally right um, look I on the point of cold war versus hot war. I mean, I do think that the Republicans under Bush especially were a, I mean, the Iraq war killed a lot of people directly and then killed a lot more people with all of its spillover effects. Because I think without the Iraq war, you wouldn't have had the dirty war in Syria. And so, you know, the initial evil that was under Bush, which was a hot war, I would put the death toll overall at higher. But regardless Whatever's killed more people, certainly Democrats have killed plenty of people. And before this election, honestly, you know, I said that I thought Biden would be less of a threat to the planet than Trump. Uh, because, and I premised that on a few things. One is that Biden was talking about rejoining the Iran nuclear deal. He hasn't done that. He's basically continued the Trump policy so far. I also thought that at least Biden was promising to join the New START treaty, which was the last remaining treaty that limits the nuclear stockpiles of the U.S. and Russia. Trump, after killing the INF treaty, was going to kill the New START treaty as well, which I thought was just like suicidal for the planet. Now, Biden, to his credit, did rejoin New START. That was the only good thing, essentially, he's done, I think, or one of the few only good things. But aside from that, he's basically continued Trump's policies. And now we have the war in Ukraine. And while I think Trump's policies contributed to the proxy war. I think the proxy war is basically an extension of Trump's policies. I have to wonder if Trump could have avoided it in ways that Biden didn't. So look, like what I'm saying is I can no longer say that I'm confident that Democrats are less of a threat to the planet than, than Republicans are. I think now they're equal. They're, they're an equal threat. And I hate to say that because um, I think Republicans are so dangerous and I think their policies are just nothing that there's nothing positive about them. But yeah, they, they play. Yeah, last thing I'm gonna say, and I and I bounce out of here. They play two different, completely different roles. So I know why people have the urge to want to say that Trump and Republicans are worse, but Democrats and and Biden are the more effective evil. As I mentioned before, DHS is getting more funding. I mean, that's, shattering that's a, that's Trump's Glenn record. Ford's head, right? That's a Glenn Ford. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He was on point. I learned. Uh, for my dear brother, right? So uh, whenever I hear people say stuff like, why don't you guys condemn Republicans? Why don't you guys say Republicans are worse? Like, I, I don't know what you guys want from me. Like, like when you see the Democrats running on funding the police more after the George Floyd protest, Joe Biden 
literally had George Floyd's family in the White House and then proceeded to sign the George Floyd Act that gave the police more money. How is that not more disrespectful than any, like, the Republican Party? You wish they can get away with that. They wish. So how can why do so many privileged people want me to come out like, oh, Republicans are worse? That doesn't serve my community at all. But sorry, I don't want to rant. Uh, thank you for taking the call. Hey, Nick. Hey. Thank you. Great yeah. to hear from me. Thanks. For One calling. thing I would say is that I do think that there's a, a difference between, like, I think people can pra- not even praise, but you can say this is the the correct thing to do without giving the person a blank check or even praising them as an individual. Like, I I personally think it's possible to be like, well, this was B- Biden was right on this, but that doesn't even give him a blank check on he was st- he's still being awful on Afghanistan like he is with the um with the with their bank with their money and the sanctions so we can't like pretend that that redeems the person they're just individual actions i think that we can judge all right and mary. up next we have mary just press the mic icon that unmutes you the bottom right of your screen Hello. Hi. Hi. Thanks. Um, anyway, I was calling because I just feel like Bernie gets some kind of threats from these people who I think maybe can threaten his family in some sort of way as far as their jobs or whatever. Does that make sense? Heard, I've heard people say that. I don't know if that's true. I've never seen any evidence of that, but I've heard people su- suggest that maybe that's an issue. I think Bernie's just kind of a, has a misplaced, out-of-date faith in the Democrats and thinks that the Republicans are worse and so doesn't want to rock the boat too much. I think Bernie's very focused on the millionaires and the billionaires, right? To his credit. I mean, I get, and he's really, he's really taken up domestic politics and the oligarchy here as his main thing. And so I don't think he looks at foreign policy very much. And I think that leads him to make some really misguided decisions and listen to the wrong people. I don't know anything about threats and I, you know, I tend not to believe stuff like that. I don't think uh, he's in that kind of position. I just think he's uh, not listening to the right people and has two myopic of focus and fails to make the connections between all his domestic priorities, which are good, you know, healthcare, education, better wages, and the war machine, which undermines the process for all these things, all these things we want at home. So yeah, that's how I see it. Yeah. All right. Let's take one more call and uh, then we can wrap. So Andrew, and if we don't take your call this week, come back next week, of course. Andrew, yeah, now we can. Yeah. All right, Hi, great. All right. Well, one, kudos to Nick. Okay. Uh, very much kudos to Nick because I think he was very much on point. Um, Bernie, Bernie's told us what's wrong. Okay. And I think we just don't listen. Um, I don't want to end up like Nada. You take that remark, okay? I don't want to end up like NATO. Now, you know, you can listen to Ralph on the radio live several times a week, and uh, Ralph seems to be okay with where Ralph is. 
So um, I get. You're talking about ending up like Nader. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I don't end up like Data. Okay, so, you know, Ralph seems to be okay with where Ralph is, right? I can't detect that he's not okay with it, all right? But Bernie wants that feeling of connection, and it's very important to him, and I'm not unsympathetic to that. You know, he's done enormously courageous things, and I still will say positive things about Bernie today, right now, because he is continuing to do what he said he was going to do, which is, you know, he's staying in the fight the way that he is capable of doing it. We just acknowledge that he's got limitations. Okay, so that's enough on Bernie. Now, Malcolm, Muhammad Ali, MLK, and imperialism, you know, and the Democratic Party. And I think that one of the biggest mistakes, and, and we all tend to do this, right? But I think one of the biggest mistakes any of us can make is to continue to treat the monoparty as if any part of it is real. The monoparty only has a certain limited reality. And that reality is for the professionals working in and around the quote-unquote democratic or quote-unquote Republican component of the monoparty. Because those people are making careers, they're getting paychecks out of it. And so they support the delusion. Right. They want everybody to blue pill and and just go back to sleep. And we're going to continue this theater. But I think the rest of us have an obligation to continue to press forward with, you know, anytime I'm going to say something about the Democratic Party, I'm going to caveat that with, you know, making the point that what I'm talking about is a public relations projection of the ruling class in this country. And the reason I mentioned Malcolm and the reason I mentioned Muhammad Ali and the reason I mentioned MLK is that during their lives, all three of them made very clear that this is a class struggle. And I will always come back again and again and again and again and again to class struggle. I don't have any difficulty at all relating identity politics to class struggle. Because every one of those things gains its power, right? The actions against every one of those components of the population gains its power from dividing us. And when we refuse to be divided and we support each other in our various struggles, then, you know, we're in a good position to create more unity. And that even means, you know, to a limited extent with libertarians, which is not a bad idea, right? But, the the simple point that I'm trying to make here, and I just I really want to you know ask for response on this from you guys, is you know what is the operational thesis that we use to prevent ourselves from falling into the chimera of democratic and republican politics, you know because it's only real for the people that are benefiting from the projection. And you, you've got NGOs that totally depend on the image of the Democratic Party to be viable. You've got various other institutions. You've got sections of government. You've got various parts of the functioning regional or state apparatuses of these parties where people have got a pay stub that they're interested in keeping. 
And I understand those people's motivations for treating the Democratic Party or the Republican Party as if they are real and actual entities. You know, because for those people, it's important well, to believe that. They're real. Isn't the point that the difference between them isn't real? I mean, they're obviously real. They're, or they wouldn't be a problem. No, no, no. They're not real. Okay, that's the point. They are projections of the ruling class interests. They're not real. Right? They are only real to the extent that somebody's drawing a paycheck. Right? I mean, let me please put the, the stress on economics here and say, you know, it's the economy stupid. These people have an economic interest and, and therefore they have a personal belief interest. But the personal belief interest comes out of the economic interest, not the other way around. If they didn't have an economic interest, their allegiance to maintaining the illusion would not be as strong. No, the, the, the so-called two-party system in the United States is only real in the sense that it is a poison pill. What's real about it is that the delusion can continue to be manipulated against the population. Yeah. And the more we educate ourselves and the more we focus ourselves on, on actually just being rational and say, no, you know, it's not real. You know, there are people who are playing it like it's real. You know, there are people at MSNBC that absolutely depend on the, the projection of the Democratic Party as being real. Right. There are people at Fox who absolutely depend on the projection of the Republican Party as being real. I mean, I don't think when we're talking about how dangerous they are, they're real. The problem is what they're doing. If they weren't real, then we wouldn't be sending 40 billion dollars to Ukraine. They're real. They may not represent. Maybe you're saying they're not real as a as a way out for our problems. But they make laws that uh, the rest of the world, for better or for worse, are subjected to. Okay, I can take every one of the individuals casting a vote in Congress and treat them as an individual and tally up their votes. And how many times, Katie, do we see that it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican when you're voting on arms appropriations? There is no party right. with respect to arms appropriations, is there? There's no party at all, is there? I think they're real. Anyway, this is maybe a semantics thing. I guess we, I mean, what you're well, talking no, it's, 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 it's not simply a semantics thing because what is happening is you get people who continue to go to the polls with the false hope that somehow putting Barack Obama or maybe, God knows, even Joe Biden into office is going to produce some kind of positive result. And the only positive result comes out from people with their feet on the street. Right. Yeah, I think we, I think okay. those things don't, yeah. And those people, those people are not nearly as concerned about Democrat or Republican as you might be if you're interested in keeping that conversation going and talking about Democrats and Republicans instead of, and as I said, you know, I'll talk about Democrats and Republicans. But they're only real to the extent that there are people who have a vested interest in keeping that delusion out there. And they will invest in trying to keep the belief of the population focused on, yeah, yeah, it's real, it's real. No, no, what's real is that the ruling class is pulling the strings on both parties and that the end result is exactly what the Princeton study produced, which is, I can't remember the two authors of it, but you know the one I'm talking about, where, you know, the the voting population basically has no effect on governmental policy, okay? And when I talk about them not being real, the consensus of the ruling class is what's real, okay? And when the consensus of the ruling class can make policy and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about Democrats or Republicans, then I challenge you to say that the distinction between two parties that are being operated from the top by the same people 
is significant except for the people that are drawing a paycheck directly or indirectly from keeping that image alive. And the more we do to rip that image down and to get people to recognize, no, you know, partisan politics as it's posed in the United States is there to keep you from organizing yourself. It's there to keep you from being effective. Otherwise, why are there so many different movements in the United States today trying to achieve things and saying, notably, the Poor People's Campaign does, you know, don't pay attention to parties. Thanks. Right. Andrew, thanks a lot for the call. And uh, we appreciate your thoughts, your thoughtful comments. And yeah, this speaks to an issue that that is very, you know, relevant right now is like the distinction between two parties that look increasingly alike and that represent just basically different factions of the ruling class. And I think uh, it's going to be a very interesting time for that to play out, especially with the midterms coming up and then in 2024, when it's like, who's going to be even our, who's even going to be the candidates to choose from? Um, it's going to be interesting, but uh, we're going to have to leave it there because we have gone over time. So, apologies to everyone who do, we didn't get to today. Please call back in next time. Yeah, we'll be here next time at 11 a.m. That's when we always come, and you can catch us live at 10 a.m. on YouTube.com/slash/UsefulIdiots. Make sure you subscribe to us there. Uh, so you never miss a stream. That's what we do before these uh, call-ins. We're live on YouTube. Uh, if you can, you can subscribe to us at uh, uh, sub, uh, uh, usefulidiots.substack.com. We've got some great uh, Substack-only content for you this week. Really great extended interview with Lev Galinkin, who's a Ukrainian journalist, Ukrainian-American journalist. Has very important insights into the Azov Battalion. Um, we get to do a little Aaron Mate takes, uh, does a little analysis of his debate with a Nazi denier. It's a great time. And we will see you next week, right? That's right. No, that's about it. Bye everybody. Thanks. everyone.